0: Hello, this is your host Dr. Casey Bradley. Welcome to the Real P3 podcast, brought to you by the Sunswine Group and swine nutrition management. Well, this is going to be another new type of episode for our listeners on the Real P3. It's going to be hearing about what goes behind the scenes at the Sunswine Group, the conversations we have internally and the ideas we have. So today I'm introducing you to my colleague, if many of you don't know, behind the scenes I have Mitch Roland, and hopefully in the next year we can call him Dr. Roland. But Mitch is doing his PhD work now at the University of Arkansas, focusing on probiotics, and I will kind of let Mitch fill you in about the grant they have and the research he's been conducting.
1: Thanks, Casey, uh, for having me on. Introduce myself real quick. My name is Mitchell Roland. i uh, went to Southern Arkansas University for my undergraduate degree, where I got an associate in chemistry and bachelor's in biology. While I was there, I did some work in the live production side on a poultry farm uh, local to where I was going to school. And then after that, I moved back to Northwest Arkansas, did a quick intern uh, in some QA microbiology, and then went to Novozymes Biologicals, where I worked for five years as a research associate doing in vivo research on probiotics and enzymes. And then uh, a little over a year ago, I came here to the Sunspine Group and uh, during my time at Nova Zines, I started my graduate program at the University of Arkansas and just finished my master's this past semester and rolling into a PhD program.
0: So tell us a little bit about the grant that you have right now with your research.
1: Yep. When I started at the University of Arkansas, I uh, started to work on a grant that had been uh, received prior to when I started. but. And it's through the U.S. Poultry and Egg Association, and it's uh, regarding model development for natural challenge in the hatching hatching cabinet or the hatching space, where uh, Dr. Graham, who was previously on the podcast, developed the natural challenge models as the first part of that research grant. And then we're uh, applying probiotics through different methods to uh, assess the mitigation of environmental pathogens.
0: So, Give the audience a little bit about what goes into this, because watching you complete your graduate work, it's no easy task to assess some of these probiotics in the field. Kind of talk us through plates and hours and stuff and what all goes into finding the right probiotics for a specific challenge model.
1: Yeah, so it's it's pretty intense and sometimes hard to sum up in a few sentences, but there was a lot of in vitro work through different assays whether it's a self supernatant or an overlay or testing competition between candidate strains, that type of work. So all of that goes in behind the scenes that wasn't really part of the grant. And then we've got a few candidates now that we're testing in these different models, and that'll be part of the PhD work.
0: Yeah, so unlike Novazymes, who has a catalog of tons of different bacteria, you sourced your candidates in a different manner. Can you share that or is that still proprietary?
1: We sampled the environment. With the environments we sampled, presumably had a little bit higher competition with different microbes. And that's kind of what we were looking for is is some bugs that have developed ways to compete in their environment. And then we screen them for the different specific pathogens that we were looking at.
0: And so in your lab, as uh, Dr. Graham mentioned, you are testing both in the hatch cabinet application, and then injecting into the eggs themselves, where the traditional route for probiotics has been traditionally the feed. Yep.
1: The goal is to, you know, we hear this term pioneer colonization, and that refers to the first bugs that get into the gastrointestinal tract of the animal, whether it's a human or egg or livestock And then in natural environments, we see that the hen will lay on her eggs, right? Or Lay on her clutch after she's laid them for a period of time. And then they maintain close contact after the eggs have hatched. So they're constantly in contact with that maternal uh, microbiota. But when we look at a commercial setting, uh, those eggs are promptly removed, oftentimes within 24 hours from the hen and taken to a hatchery or stored in a cooler prior to being put into the incubator. And so they don't have that constant contact with maternal uh, microbiota. And so sometimes we'll see blooms inside the hatching cabinet of pathogens. And right now formaldehyde is one of the mitigation methods. And it's quite effective against all microbes while it's being applied. Some cases we've seen where after the formaldehyde application stops, the bloom will come back. And it's been shown in some literature that formaldehyde can affect the respiratory tract of the chicks and if it's not applied properly or in too high of a dose. And so that opens pathways for other infections. That's kind of the end goal is either an alternative or replacement of formaldehyde fumigation.
0: It's very interesting. And this audience has traditionally been swine in the past. And we brought on a few poultry people in my life. And I want you to kind of think about how we cross over. If you're a swine nutritionist, you're a swine professional listening to this or you're a ruminant even listening to this. We think about environment. We think about when we always talk about AMR or antimicrobial resistance, we always assume it's around antibiotics. But if you really think about evolution of bacteria, viruses, they're going to find a way to survive in any environment. And so, when I think of probiotics and I look across different species, I really look to see how this is going to benefit us. And something interesting to know is, I don't know if you fed any egg products in your, out there listeners or you're using egg antibodies, but the laying hen can be very good at providing immunity, not only to her chick, but using that process that she develops for her chickens and her chicks, but also... That we can create specific antibodies for diseases in humans, in pigs, in cattle. And they use those in different colostrum supplements, feed additives. I've tested egg products throughout my career. And so there is crossover. We, we put that in the box. as poultry. We don't want to be hearing what they have going on. But I think it's really time as an industry we start looking at this. Because Mitch starts talking about this. And I'm not a poultry person. And I don't necessarily... I love poultry to death, but you know, it's something I'm learning thanks to Mitch. And I, I do like my layers, I'll admit they're like my sows. But what made me really excited to learn about this is we're using formaldehyde in feed mitigation today. And we've tested different assets and different mitigation strategies in the fear of ASF, for instance, from a swine industry perspective. But when I see these probiotics, is this something else that we haven't traditionally looked at and then you're disinfecting the eggs which is an environment we are disinfecting with chemicals today in our barns after we power wash so this could be some natural probiotics said so that early pioneering of that gut versus total sterilization that we could find even a new way to disinfect our environments And that's kind of what excites me about learning about your project and bringing it over to the pig world. In my mind, have we been down this path of chemicals and not really thinking of creating competitive inhibition with probiotics in our environment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly a possibility. You know, you mentioned feed there at the beginning, and this project hasn't been solely focused on feed, but it has, you know, kind of been a thought. The bugs we're looking at may not be suited for a feed application. The way that their life cycle is, they wouldn't be active in the feed. They would certainly survive pelleting and and that type of process. But being active in the feed is is something to mitigate pathogens in the feed. I don't know that specifically these pathogens or these bugs would be uh, suited for that. But certainly there are various aspects of probiotics uh, or bacteria in general that it may be a, a metabolite from a bacteria that could be used in feed versus uh, some chemical application and um, you talked about pressure washing and cleaning in the in the barns one one idea could be post post power washing and cleaning is spraying the surfaces with a probiotic that way if there's when the pigs come in contact with those surfaces they pick up that probiotic and you know as the piglets are being being birthed, you know, they're coming out onto a floor that's covered in probiotics. So in addition to the maternal uh, microbiota that they come in contact with while they're being birthed, they're also coming in contact with beneficial or potentially beneficial microflora. Or
0: even microbiota. harmful if we didn't clean right. right. What's really interesting about probiotics, and I think each speaker touched on it, and when we get into this realm that we talk about it, a lot of stuff just gets dumped. And we got the prebiotic, which is food for the bacteria. We have probiotics, which is living bacteria. We have stembiotics. We have postbiotics, which are components or digestive metabolites from these. And it's really kind of even a way some initial antibiotics were discovered because they're metabolites of different bacteria that naturally kill. And so that's where we traditionally have found our drugs Where do you see combining all those? Is there a one-size-fits-all? We should just feed a specific probiotic and hope it blooms and produces metabolites. Or do you see that natural connection between those different components of working together to help provide the best we can for our animals?
1: So I I definitely don't think that there's a single probiotic or will be a single probiotic out there that is a cure-all. Uh, even in one animal space, I definitely think that each probiotic would be best suited for what it was designed for or selected for. I guess not designed, but so for instance, bug A may work best in a hatching environment, but not in feed. It may have you know no digestive benefit as a feed additive. Bug B that does work in the feed may not work in the hatcher. So, trying to find a fit all or a cure all is probably not the best approach to probiotics. Um, we also have to realize that probiotics are living. Uh, the animal you're putting them in is living. They have a living microbiota. So there's a lot of factors that, that play into the effect of a probiotic. And so sometimes we need to step back and realize that it may not work every single time um, in every single situation. So that's kind of the, the view that I have on probiotics. I definitely think they have a space
0: Well, it's interesting because many of our audience, you know, listens to the Real P three, but they probably don't realize that we have nutritional customers that we work with. And I love the fact that there's been some different talk out there. Finally, that we're bridging this gap between nutrition and health. I always thought veterinarians and nutritionists needed to work together, but we do a lot of insights into what's commercially available for our customers on probiotics and other feed additives and. Kind of what's your mindset when you're shopping for a probiotic to recommend to our customers? What, what were you looking for, Mitch? And walk us through, because you just developed a a feed additive, basically a feed supplement for poultry. Tell us what, what mindset went through when you selected the probiotic that you did.
1: So when we, when we put that product together, first thing we wanted to look at was something that had some data behind it, right? Um you know, we we get this, probiotics kind of get this mentality that they're pixie dust or uh, magic dust. And so while there are some out there that may fit that description, there are a lot that don't. And so looking through literature, looking at products and seeing if they have literature assigned to them or associated with them, and sometimes it may be a little hard because the literature doesn't necessarily come out and say this specific product. Sometimes it's a
0: yeah. Or the negative the data finalized. never right. comes yeah. into the literature.
1: True. yeah. Uh, sometimes literature is kind of held back. So looking for probiotics that are made by companies that have good reputation and data backing up what they're claiming is certainly something that we wanted to look at. The other thing is choosing a product that's contains bugs that are stable for our application. Certain bugs, for instance, bacillus, right? They produce spores, so they're stable for a long period of time. And a lot of bacillus are... A lot of probiotics that are used at feed are bacillus.
0: Thermosability, age. spore forming, right. survivability, and they're grass by AFCO, right. <laughs> they're grandfathered in. Think, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> there's, there's a few that, that, are, that are not, but uh, we steer clear of those.
0: Swine Nutrition Management is a consultancy service in South Africa, whereas pig nutritionists have a vision to provide customers with practical, up-to-date, and accurate nutritional information, which will add value to their farming enterprises by moving closer to unlocking the genetic potential of their animals. They develop tailored, cost-effective feeding programs for customers. Their approach is not to develop least costs, but rather best cost feed programs. By reviewing the entire cost structure of the farm, this includes a deep understanding of the production equation, which is driven by throughput, productivity, and feed efficiency. So, I mean, we obviously said there's not a magic bullet for everybody, and and we chose to put in a probiotic in our first supplement product. And I really think, you know, when I look at probiotics, and most of you may not know or know about me, is I'm a big proponent of yeast. I've always thought yeast definitely has some advantages. I do think probiotics work really well. And well, we both got our graduate degrees on probiotics, prebiotics. I mean, that was my master's degree as well. And we developed some of the first probiotics in the U.S. at the University of Arkansas as well. We didn't become Pacific Vet groups and get bought by Novozymes. But our probiotics that we did a lot of research on went through ag tech and then into um, with Ellen Davis and Derry Brown's work. And Marvin's work back in the day and lots of milk replacer that I mixed too, but that was ag tech than IFF. So ours went a different route, but I'd still say, you know, you look at the University of Arkansas from probiotic development and innovation, Dr. Hargis is still doing it. You have a novel thing. I'm not going to say it on the podcast or have you release it because this is kind of top secret really big deal with your discovery that you made that has nothing to do with agriculture but could be very beneficial for other applications but then also you know dr maxwell and his and tc is still doing a lot of work on probiotics for kent nutrition so when i see a pioneer in probiotics i really look to the university of arkansas and kind of for anybody who doesn't know Dr. Hargis, kind of explain his uniqueness and his abilities to really be that innovator in driving the industry with intentions around poultry health and probiotics. Yeah, so working with Dr. Hargis for
1: prior to my graduate degree when I was at no Designs, there was some collaboration there. But then during my graduate degree, when we really began to get close, Dr. Hargis is a great guy. I, I think if I don't take anything else from my graduate program, it would be the fact that he has taught me to look outside the box. You just mentioned some of the things that we've talked about that we're not ready to put out there yet, but if I hadn't had been looking or had someone like Dr. Hargis looking outside the box at what we were working on and not just focusing on specifics of the grant or the trial or whatever, then we might have not seen this. So sometimes what you expect to happen doesn't. I don't remember the exact statistic and by no means am I comparing myself to any of the people that have that have won Nobel Prize uh, awards but if I'm remembering correctly there are more Nobel prizes that were discovered by accident than ones discovered with the intent of discovering that specific thing right
0: so, oh wow! He's, think, he's gonna put pressure. I'm gonna be <laughs> going to the Nobel <laughs> Prize <laughs> award on this one. No, no. I don't think <laughs> no. <so. laughs> oh well, we can help, right? <laughs> but,
1: but yeah, I mean, sometimes we get too caught up in what we're doing, in the here and now, and getting to the specific goal at the end of the project, um, and we forget to look at what might be happening to the left or the right, and which may be better than than what we're looking at right here. But not not better, but also be beneficial uh, in that respect. So, you know, widening our peripheral vision to see other things that are happening uh, with what we're doing, I think is one of the main teachings or learnings that I've gotten from from Dr. Hargis.
0: He's an incredible scientist yes. and mentor. And that brings us up to, you know, what we do here in Behind the Scenes. I love the way Mitch and I can work together and we have it set up. We have a small wall, but we basically... The entire day, if we're in the office together, we're pitching ideas back and forth. We got a whiteboard. You never know what you're going to find on our whiteboard, (laughs) any given idea. So there's a lot of innovation ideas and thoughts that come out of this office, not just shared on the real P3. But Dr. Graham made something really important in her presentation, or not presentation, but interview, sorry, is communication, right? And you brought up looking peripheral. And I come from the feed out world and I worked on innovation. I worked on budgets. And we even look at grants. We'll go back to the grants and ag, and we talk about innovations we need in agriculture to feed this world. And the changes I've heard in other conversations over the last few weeks even again is that the universities have gone towards everybody chasing the NIH money right? That's what our professors are geared towards. That's what makes them prestigious or that's what universities want, right? How much NIH type NIFA, different grants I can bring in. And then I look at it from a commercial side. We spent so much money in finding this one candidate for this one application that a lot of times I've seen, hey, what about this application? What about that application? And, you know, it how we can't do it. Our business model is this. We can't jump over. And even in companies, we get siloed into feed is separate from health and poultry is separate from pigs and cows. And I've always been a little bit more open-minded how I think about solving problems. And the crazy thing is I'm working with rabbits and I'm like, oh, the rabbits can really help me even solve problems in pigs. And Kind of what is your reflections on that communication? I mean, obviously, I'm not just rubbing off on Mitch. This is Mitch, right? I'm letting Mitch shine here. But kind of, I mean, what are we lacking with probiotics? Because I don't think any of the speakers really answered that to me effectively. What are we lacking to take probiotics to the next level?
1: What are we? So obviously, we need to learn more. We need to... uh, look at some of the advanced technologies that are coming out with microbiome being one of them right I think Dr. Pixley mentioned that in his in his interview really figuring out what these interactions are doing and I think we're on the cusp of being able to do that I don't think we can fully do that and I could be totally wrong there are a lot more there are people who are a lot more educated than I am on the microbiome space but I think right now it's Difficult to really tease out interactions using that technology, but I think it's possible. And I think and hope that it happens soon. I think, you know, we need a little bit more. We need to help get some more understanding out um, to the industry and, and really work to push this negative stigma that, that are, that's attached to probiotics um, to kind of put that to bed. Um, and the only way to do that, I think, is more robust data.
0: So how does this get funded? I mean, timelines. Um, does it take a collaborative group between academia, industry, governments to get this done? Or how do you see that with everybody pulling for funds, fighting, I got to make my sales dollars. So this probiotic, I picked the best candidate. And you need to have it in market in two years. And I need to have $5 million in sales, Casey. It, that's, that's the plan even though i get through halfway and it's maybe not it's cost prohibitive it's not hit, you know solving the solution we want how do we do this to where we can really help agriculture because right now if everybody works in their little silos it's taking forever to get to that finish line
1: yeah so i definitely think we referred to the silos right where you know no one's talking across industry or within departments or or however that structure's set up. I definitely think that some sort of structure and some sort of plan and, and roadmap needs to be put in place, but I th- think that there needs to be more leeway along those paths, right? Failures are going to happen. Being afraid of failure is is sometimes prohibitive, right? People don't want to try something new because they're afraid they're going to fail and get in trouble or or, or whatever. And, and making those roadmaps with points along the way to say, hey, can we veer off to the left or veer off to the right? Does that look better than continuing down our, our original plan?" But going point A to point B and not looking side to side or in the rearview mirror sometimes is not the best way to get to a, an end product that's helpful to the industry.
0: Well, let's put something else in the mix, because I think this is another massive hurdle of how do we work around to really benefit the industry? So you worked for one of the global giants in probiotics, fermentation, and any new discovery, and Chris mentioned it, and I'm like, I wish it was a conversation over a beer, Chris, versus a formal interview, Chris, on his podcast. So another major hurdle I find in innovation in the industry are patents. You get large companies who have lots of good lawyers and lots of money, and they can file patents on different innovations. And it kind of stifles potentially a better candidate or a different discovery with patents. And what are your feelings on that? I understand companies spend a lot of money on their IP, and they want to protect it. But how does that collaboration we just talked about, right, and having a unified front on this, how do we move past patents, because I'm assuming even with COVID it's probably a good example. Those companies probably patented some of those mRNA techniques that they use to make these vaccines and stuff. How do you work around that when you're trying to come up with a solution that's going to help the industry?
1: That's a tough one. I mean, I'm certainly not a patent attorney or or someone who deals in patents. So, you know, like you said, I, I understand the, you know, I've spent millions of dollars on this. I need to make my money back. And obviously, I invested in it yeah. to make profits for my company. So it's completely understandable. Yeah, the, I don't know that I have a suggestion or a solution to, you know, make that more of a streamlined and collaborative process. You know, it, sometimes it's it's hard to tell who or what can be trusted, which is unfortunate, right, for the world we live in and detrimental. But you do have to protect yourself.
0: And I just use that as an example because my patent attorney told me on my software development not to patent it because the thing with computer coding anyways is one little snippet change and they can steal it, right? They could change your code a little bit and said, oh, we came up with it, even though it's your exact code minus that. When we think about, when I was talking about patents, it's not so much the patent on that specific bacteria, that strain, is use cases. And I've been involved in these conversations as well in innovation. It's more use cases. They've had a use to say probiotics help in this application manner for this type of problem, and thus that stifles innovation to say is there a better candidate for that application. And so to me, I think that's also, you know, we are fighting, Interesting enough, we're recording this a little late for delivery in June, but finding out that there is a bill introduced in the Senate to help feed additives get quicker regulatory approval for like nitrogen metabolism and, and emissions and different things to help accelerate that innovation development. But when we look at some of this, and this is just thrown out this is a conversations we've had internally. So I want you guys to hear the behind the scenes is do we also need to look at patent laws to help with biotechnology. Now, obviously, if I develop a specific feeder or a specific fan or a new type of motor and, and things like that, I think patents are really important. But we still know we get knockoffs in different countries and it protects it us some, but not really. Do you feel that, I mean, you're working on this, do you feel somebody's going to come back behind you and kind of steal this? Or how do you protect your IP as a Innovator there at the university.
1: Sometimes you, you have to be careful about what you say, or things are protected. Mm-hmm. Um, there's different avenues, right, that um, you can do that. Obviously, some of the things they teach you at the very beginning of uh, going down a scientific path in, in college, right, keep the lab notebook, assign and date it, right? So uh, if there is any issues, right, down the line, then you have evidence that says i was there first
0: yeah i'm bringing this up for young graduate students too right we we mentor and we talked to a lot of graduate students that listen to this and i think this is important to also share on that communication front is i think with digitalization and data we've gotten really bad at record keeping and not hearing this patent so yeah, you have not heard a lot of Mitch's research being published or presented because Mitch and the University of Arkansas, or not necessarily Mitch, your professors and the University of Arkansas, you'll be on the patent. You're going after patents for what you're doing. And I think we need to even consider that to talk to our young people coming in the industry, not just from a corporate perspective where it may be challenging and it may stifle others' innovation, but protect that company's innovation That if you're coming up with a new idea, a new application, a new thought, you discover a new bacteria, new protein, get a hold of your patent office. And I think universities are doing a better job at this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important for a young person to come out and develop their career to say, hey, I have three patents that I own on this. To me, that makes you a more valuable hire. And so... This is combining, the real P3 is about problems, people, producers, change the peas around, but we're combining our coffee in the barn and mentoring. So this is behind the scenes, ladies and gentlemen. So it's a little different, but if you're a young professional listening, I said the negative part on patents that could stifle innovation, but I'm saying if you're a young researcher, young scientist, you got an idea and it works, if you're in graduate school or even working for a company that doesn't necessarily patent very well, that you should protect your IP. And as Mitch said, have the documents to prove it. This is many conversations I've had with different professors, professionals in the industry, and really consider patenting. And if you're at a university, they usually have a patent office and lawyers that will help you versus you paying for it by yourself which i can tell you is not that cheap but i think it's also important that it doesn't matter if you're an individual or small that you can do the same thing the corporates have done and benefit yourself in the long run.
1: Yep. yep I agree, you know, i mentioned that the signing of the notebook i always thought that was kind of cheesy, right? Whenever you start out in your career mm-hmm. and you're doing these repeated labs or your, your academic career, right? You're doing these labs that have been repeated a hundred times, why do I need to sign this, this isn't. But now coming into uh, certain activities and, and trials and stuff that are on the frontier, I see now why it is important to, to do those things that you may think are cheesy, right? Whenever you're first first moving into a scientific program.
0: But I hope you like this a little different. It's not just Casey talking about her ideas and thoughts. This is, this is mutual. It's a team that we're creating here, the Sun Swelling Group. We are driving education, communication, and innovation. These are kind of the three main things that are important to me. We do that in, in different ways and different levels, but we want to help the industry be better I love my pigs. Mitch loves his chickens. I even love cows and other things. So, you know, we're we're not opposed to different species. And I think that's my biggest takeaway of having the opportunity to work with you, Mitch. This I've been in over a year now yep. that we've worked together. As you've pushed me outside of my box of introducing me to do new ideas, new concepts, new ways of doing things, And I think that's my biggest takeaway of probiotics is get outside that box. If the trial didn't go right, what went right? So that is just the last minute thoughts for this episode on the Real P3. Thank you.